medical care in a McDonald's parking lot next to the dumpster with a person in chaotic drug use who shows up high, late, and he wants to get off the needle. He says, I'm going to die if I don't. And Tim says two things that I think, think end, up, end up being the core of the book. One, you can get better because we've just lost so much hope about this. And two, don't disappear. And that's really the crux of harm reduction. Even if you relapse before I'm able to see you again next week, still come back to our appointment. If you can't make it because your car broke down, text me and I'll come to you. Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Beth Macy combines deep shoe leather reporting with the heart and instincts of a storyteller. She spent most of the past decade applying those skills to revealing the truth of the opioid crisis in America. Four years ago, she published the best-selling book, Dope Sick, about how big pharmaceutical companies pushed Oxycontin and other drugs until countless people became hopelessly addicted. That book became a Hulu limited series starring Michael Keaton, and the series is nominated for 14 Emmy Awards at next month's ceremony. This week, her new book is out. It's called Raising Lazarus, and it's a follow-up to Dope Sick, focusing mostly on the helpers, the folks down at street level helping people with addictions stay safe and eventually get clean. It's tough work just to write about it, and that work has taken a toll on Macy and her family. As she wrote about the damage the big drug companies have done, she had a suspicious van show up behind her house in Roanoke, Virginia. But she still talks about her subject with the same passion she writes about it, the passion of someone with an important story to tell, if only enough people will listen. You should listen. Here's our conversation. This book is is a sequel of sorts, I guess, to Dope Sick. What kind of unfinished business did you feel like you had going into this book? I didn't realize I had unfinished business. When, when Dope Sick came out in 2018, I was really bereft because I had uh, the, the young woman whose story I've been tracking for like two and a half years, her name is Tess Henry, um, died violently, not, not of an overdose, but she was murdered in a faraway city. And I had gotten really close to her family. And, uh, and also I was just pissed off at the government's lack of response to this and not just the government but local health providers i was just i mean to be honest i was just angry and bereft and i thought i never want to write about this again i want to go write about the westminster dog show or something um you know something a bit more light and fun which you know as a former feature writer we were used to getting to do at a newspaper you write something really dark and then go write something lighter And then as I went out talking about it, I started to hear about some pretty innovative things that to me were the answer that to me equaled what Tess had said the first time I met her in 2015, when she described how she had been overprescribed at a 
urgent care center. She said, well, we need some kind of urgent care for the addicted. And I started to see what might equal that. I mean, Tess didn't really know what she meant then because it didn't exist in her world. But as I started to see it popping up here and there, still not very many places, I thought, uh, you know, maybe I can write a more hopeful book. And also part of me, I'm just like, I'm like you, I'm a competitive journalist, and it took me years to figure out the story, you know, including to figure out that I had my own stigma and biases. When I wrote the proposal for Dope Sick in 2015, experts were predicting the epidemic would crest in 2018. And I actually put it in the book uh, proposal as a marketing thing. Like, look, we'll have this book come out right when it's at its highest. But no, it has continued to, it's gotten twice as bad since then. So the folks in this book, most of them, I would say, do work that kind of falls under the umbrella of what is called harm reduction. Yeah. So could you explain to folks who might not be as familiar with this world, sort of what that entails and what kind of things people who yeah. work in harm reduction do? Yeah. So when I first heard about it, I thought harm reduction equals needle exchange. And it does. And it does include needle exchange. But as I started to spend time at these places, including like there's a great, a great, great uh, group called Olive Branch Ministry that's based out of Hickory near where you live. Uh it's so much more than that. It's it's this idea of meeting people where they are, even if they're still in chaotic drug use. So not just with clean needles, but with food if they need it, with help applying for a job, with, with telling who who's hiring felons, with um, maybe just sitting with them in their tent and witnessing uh, their trauma. You know, um, it's all kinds of things. It's letting those folks volunteer in your center. I mean, that kind of blew me away the first time I went down to Olive Branch's Needle Exchange in Hickory when a person who was clearly on meth was there giving out needles. I mean, she could barely finish her thought. She was so jacked up. And and Michelle, the, the woman who runs it, explained, you know, this is harm reduction too. She can still be a valuable part of this organization. So it's just like, click, click, click. Gradually, my mind began to open what real harm reduction was. But at the beginning, it's kind of counterintuitive. You know, like all the cops will at first go, you're going to give them needles? That's enabling their use. Well, no, it's actually making you safer, officer, because if you arrest somebody and you pat them down and you get stuck with the needle, then you got to worry about one year of hepatitis C testing. And it's it's making it's really about making a bridge and a relationship with somebody who is so far out of our systems of care at this point that uh, it's all about like being kind to people and putting humanity back into our institutions. And it's also, I mean, it feels like the the other shift in that people have to make in their mind on this is that is looking at drug addiction as like a health issue instead of a law and order issue. People are dying in that gap between treating them as a moral failure and a criminal and treating them as a person with a treatable medical condition. I mean, too many people think it isn't treatable. It is. There, there are really great efficacious medicines for that. We're just not not offering them to scale to match the crisis. So that's why I go up to Fairfax and spend some time there because they have figured out a great way to treat people in their jail. 
because we know when people get out of jail, they're 29 times more likely to overdose and die. So there are models out there. They're just few and far between, and we may need to make them the rule rather than an exception. So my idea was, well, I wasn't sure exactly when this money was going to start to come down from the opioid litigation settlement when I began. Well, it turns out it started last month. The first big chunk from the distributor settlement started to come down. I thought, how great would it to be to have a book who, full of people who are doing um, you know, what the evidence says is the best way to do this because it's so political and it's such a cultural sticky wicket still in so many really conservative parts of the country. Yeah. And you talk about that um, a lot in the book. And, and one of the things that surprised me was how places that are sort of close together geographically can have very different reactions politically to all this stuff. And it feels like it's almost the luck of a draw, like who gets a sheriff that understands things a little better or who gets uh, a health director who has a little bit different understanding. Right. I mean, you sort of contrasted Hickory, the place you're talking about earlier and Surrey County, like Mount Airy, North Carolina, they're fairly close together, but have reacted to all this in very different ways, right? Yeah, very different ways. And the story I love about Mount Airy, now if they would have let me just write a book on Mount Airy, I would have had a hell of a book. But right. I couldn't and, really and Mount Airy, which I guess people may know, is sort of the model for Mayberry in the Absolutely, right? absolutely. Yeah. And the first time I go there, there's this meaning of, church do-gooders who are going to give up their weekdays and their church fans to drive people to treatment into town because a lot of people live in the hinterlands. And it gets hijacked by the civic leader who says, I think when they die, when they overdose, we should let them die and take their organs. And the whole meeting went to hell. And to go from that point to where they are now, which is much, much, much better place, it's pretty incredible. You have all these incredible characters throughout the book who are doing, you know, the Lord's work in one way or another. And uh, the, right at the beginning, you kind of start out with this guy named Tim Nolan over in Hickory. Could you sort of describe his, you know, drive-by harm reduction program? Yeah. I mean, if there's a saint that works on the earth, it's Tim Nolan. I didn't know him at all. When I first met Michelle, who runs Olive Branch, which is the nation's only queer, biracial, faith-based harm reduction group in the nation, uh, her goal at the time wasn't just, she already had three needle exchanges going, but she said, you know, the holy grail would be to be offering low-barrier buprenorphine, which means like, we're going to get you on this medication-assisted treatment, buprenorphine, methadone. We're going to get it to you wherever you are, whether it's at a homeless encampment, under a bridge or at a McDonald's parking lot. And so it took me a while to get Michelle and them to trust me, right? Because, you know, they've had to really scrap hard for legitimacy in where they are. And um, so I was down there at the, you know, it's in a, it's in a double wide behind a church in Hickory at her needle exchange. And this guy comes in and he's um, cause they, they have a suicidal patient who, uh, so he he leaves his job and he comes in and it's Tim Nolan. And I've already heard about him. He's the one now that's going out and doing this low barrier buprenorphine work at night after he works all day at his regular job, which is unaffiliated with Olive Branch. So he's doing this as a volunteer. And, and I say to him, uh, hey, I'm working on this book. I want to include Olive Branch. And uh, do you think I could shadow you? Forget what I said. Go out with you when you're doing 
your low barrier work. And he goes, you're Beth Macy, right? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, oh, I've read your books. And then I was like, oh, oh, good. Because it took me a long time to convince Michelle that I was worthy of trust. And so then I, he basically let me go out with them. And he is somebody who started out just handing out needles. Um, but then he realized that uh, most people didn't want to get better. They didn't even want to start the buprenorphine. So then, but what do they want? Oh, they want, they all had hepatitis C, just about all of them. They want a tested and treatment for that. So then he goes delivering that. And once they start to get a little bit better, they were like, I got to get off the needle. How can you help me? And, and then where he really comes alive is when they start helping each other. I mean, he really has a strong spiritual core and to see him, like he'll just go anywhere. He'll go into a single wide full of COVID uncountable number of animals. Uh, you know, he'll do anything to help these folks and he loves it. And so that was really cool to see. So the book starts out in a McDonald's parking lot. This wasn't my first beginning, but once this happened, I was like, this is the most incredible thing I've ever witnessed. Medical care in a McDonald's parking lot next to the dumpster with a person in chaotic drug use who shows up high, late, and he wants to get off the needle. He says, I'm going to die if I don't. And Tim says two things that I think, think end, up, end up being the core of the book. Uh, he'll, he'll, he'll get this fella on low-cost uh, low buprenorphine. He'll call it in the next day to the one Walgreens he's got a relationship with. But he tells him two things. One, you can get better because we've just lost so much hope about this, including people with OUD. They, they've lost their hope about it. Most Americans think are just writing them off. And two, don't disappear. And that's really the crux of harm reduction. Even if you relapse before I'm able to see you again next week, still come back to our appointment. If you can't make it because your car broke down, text me and I'll come to you. And it's this idea of instead of writing off this whole group of people that we've basically abandoned, we're going to bring them back into our systems of care. And when they're better, then they'll be able to come to us at the clinic. Um, so that's that was just like, witnessing a miracle. And that seemed to be one of the big issues uh, throughout the book is that people do, I think what you call ditch and dodge, you know, when you're trying to find folks who have these drug problems and sometimes they either don't want help or they don't know how to receive it. They're not good at receiving it or whatever. And they just vanish, right? Yeah. Or their lives are so chaotic that, I mean, their main concern is not becoming dosic every day because they'll be crapping their pants and being really, really sick. And of course, you got you got to get well for the day. And also they're being kicked out of their homeless encampments right and left. So the, I mean, you're talking about the story in Charleston, West Virginia, where the police are constantly raiding these homeless encampments and get, making folks move. So uh, yeah, ditch and dodge is, is very much par for the course there. Toward the end of the book, you say something, you sort of sum it up in, in a really nice way. You say, in America, it's easier to get high than to get help. And I know you could spend all day answering this question, but why is that? It's because we've all been culturally inculcated in drug war thinking. So that our first response, our most available response is going to be to call the police 
And when the police come, they do what they do, which is arrest people. And um, until we get programs like Stacey Kincaid has in Fairfax, or, you know, I even got to see Mount Airy start to implement this diversion from jail to treatment. Um, we're just going to see the same thing cycle over and over. I talk about Ridley County, Indiana, where this badass Appalachian woman named Nikki King has figured out how to, when somebody comes out of jail, get them into really good treatment and a program that helps them get back on their feet. And that breaks the cycle of recidivism. We don't have a healthcare system because we don't have healthcare for everyone in the country. That's like, that's the lowest hanging fruit. Second, we only have about 20% of people with OUD being able to access the life-saving medicines, buprenorphine and methadone. That's this- And OUD, it's it's opioid use- Disorder, yeah. Opioid use disorder. So we're not at, we're not offering treatment at the scale to match the the scale of the crisis is, is the, is the, um, the gist of it. Another thing that surprised me in this book is that as you went back and looked at sort of the history of how we've looked at, at looked at and treated drug use over the years, that one of the more progressive methods was started under President Nixon, right? Yeah, just prior to his drugs are public enemy number one statement, you know, we had Vietnam veterans coming back from the war who were addicted to heroin from being in Vietnam where it was more available. And uh, he hires this guy who's this, like, at at the time, cutting-edge researcher. His name is Dr. Jerome Jaffe, and he ends up becoming what we now call the nation's first drug czar. He gives him six or seven days to design a treatment-on-demand program so that any veteran coming back anywhere in the U.S. has access to a walk-in clinic where they can not just get methadone, they can also get housing, social supports. I mean, we've done this before. The exact kind of thing people are trying to do now, right? Uh, yeah, just not enough people trying to do it and not enough public support for it. And it's just, you know, it makes financial sense. It makes human sense. There's there's so many arguments for it and so few against it. But we, you know, in this country right now, we just can't seem to get anything done. You talked about the money that's starting to trickle down from these settlements with the drug companies and the distributors and that sort of thing. Could you sort of catch people up on what's going on with that, not just with the distributors, but with the Sacklers who are at sort of the the top of the pyramid on all that and were, were obviously sort of the villains and mm-hmm. dope sick and, and still are in, in this book too. The Sacklers and Purdue were the originators of the opioid crisis. Many other bad actors jumped in to join them and cash in. But... Um, Right about the time I was starting this book in 2019, um, you know, there were about 3,000 lawsuits from municipalities, Indian tribes uh, across the country against various opioid makers and distributors and even pharmacies. And most of them got bundled up into what's called this multi-district litigation based out of Cleveland. And the idea was we're going to pay back the communities for um, the harm or the public nuisance harm that that the opioid crisis has uh, created in all of our communities. There's no community that hasn't been touched by this. And what the Sacklers and Purdue did is they got themselves sort of apart by this by having by Purdue um, 
filing for bankruptcy in White Plains, New York, which is not where they're based. It happens to be where there's this bankruptcy judge that favors what's called a third-party non-consenting release, meaning that the Sacklers can get the benefit of bankruptcy uh, without themselves being bankrupt. So they're going to end up paying. I mean, it's currently on appeal, so we don't really know what's going to happen with it. And meanwhile, you've got this sort of public People are starting to understand that it's not their cousin, Joe, who's in jail for like selling a user amount of dope. It, it, the Sacklers caused this, right? Or one of the folks that caused it. And so um, you've got public sentiment starting to get it finally. But, you know, the Sacklers would be happy for you to be lost in the wonky details of this bankruptcy. Um, so that's why I use, you know, about a third to a fourth of the book is also about what's happening with them. And I tell that story through the lens of these activists, uh, including the famous photographer Nan Golden, who got their names removed from the museum and who followed the bankruptcy. And even though everything went to Zoom during COVID, you know, they were meeting every Thursday night on Zoom and plotting what they were going to do next. And they have this really compelling young lawyer who works for them pro bono at night, just like Tim in the parking lots, helping them file these um, these pleadings to call out what's happening in this bankruptcy case for the ridiculous uh, slap on the wrist that it is. And so he becomes a major character. His name's Mike Quinn, and he's angering the judge and getting threatened with contempt at every uh, corner. And so I, I, you know, I was trying to find like these gritty characters to follow, no matter what I was writing about. And along the way, you sort of mentioned kind of in passing that you and other people involved in all this kind of felt like you were being watched along the way. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So Nan's group was being trailed by a who knows who they think it was somebody the Sacklers hired, but who that's unprovable. Uh, Patrick Ryden Keefe, who wrote the wonderful book Empire of Pain, was being tracked at his home in Westchester County. There was a Sunday where I look out my bathroom curtains and there's this uh, van I had never seen in the alley behind my house, just sitting there for a long time, um, right in front of my raised tomato bed. You know, it was intimidating. We got, we all got letters from their lawyers. Uh, I was working on the show. Uh, so Dope Sick got made into Hulu series and I was part of that. And, uh, you know, they were, Richard Seckler's lawyers was writing letters about me to Disney, which owns Hulu, saying, you know, my journalism wasn't to be trusted. And, um, you know, it was, it was meant to intimidate and, and, it did, but the truth's got to get out. When we come back, Beth Macy talks about learning the ropes as her book transformed into a Hollywood TV series. Like, that would never happen because those two locations are too far away from each other. You know, stupid stuff like that. And, and Danny finally, like, has it and he goes, Beth! We'll take care of that with a cut. Like, you know, and I was like, okay, Macy, calm down, be quiet. That and more ahead on Southbound. Hey, this is Tommy. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, 
please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Beth Macy. So let's talk about Dope Sick for a minute. The, the folks who are in Dope Sick, how did they react, first of all, to being in your book, and then secondly, to see their a version of their story on TV with, you know, on Hulu with Michael Keaton and all these folks playing these parts? Let me start with Steve Lloyd, because he's this doctor out of Tennessee who himself got addicted and was doing all the crazy things you see Michael Keaton's character doing. Um, and, and Keaton's character was loosely based on Dr. Steve, although Danny, the showrunner, Danny Strong, knew of other stories uh, as well. But Dr. Steve actually came into the writing room with us one afternoon and just let us ask him anything. Dr. Steve said he got a call from his mom one day who said, Steve, have you seen this show Dokesick? Because this guy on it is just like your story. And he's like, yeah, mom, I help with the show. You know, so he's pretty thrilled because he wants people to understand what went down. Sister Beth Davies, who is this um, nun from Appalachia, Pennington Gap, Virginia. She was too busy saving people to watch the show. And then she had to go to rehab for a medical condition. She had a physical rehab. And um, one of her friends took her laptop to the, the assisted living and played it for her. And I have a video of Sister Beth watching the character playing Sister Beth, helping Michael Keaton's character. That was like, oh man. That was just like the best. She's going, uh-huh, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. And so all these folks that are in the show, um, I, of course, knew them from the working on the book, but Danny and I would interview them together on conference call while we were writing uh, the series so that, and it was interesting, the kind of questions you and I would ask somebody we're going to write about for print were so different than what Danny would ask. Danny, well, so you and I would be like, when did you first, you know, Sister Beth, when did you, how did you, what made you know that this was going to be something that was going to change your community forever? And she'd tell you, oh, that's when people started locking their doors and she'd tell you some stories. Danny wanted to know, what exactly would you say to somebody who came in to your counseling center? How would you get them to start to feel good about themselves again? I, I just wouldn't think of that. And so then that's where the dialogue of, you know, her having Michael Keaton journal and, you know, tell me about what it was like to deliver babies and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, you have to show that stuff and you, you lose the ability we have when we're writing to like digress and tell the history of something. You just have to show it in dialogue. So that was, that was a stretch for me at first, but I learned a lot watching Danny work. I was going to say, so you're somebody, obviously you've been a journalist your whole career. You've been about 
making sure everything you write is accurate and factually true and all that sort of thing. How big a shift was that for you? Because I know you wrote some of the show yeah. to to fictionalize your material. Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a jump. So I was in the room. We were only in the room together for 10 days before COVID appeared. And then we all went back to our homes and just did it on Zoom, which was cool. We got to know each other. But I remember like day two, and I was probably talking too much. You know, I was a little protective of my material. And uh, I remember like, like that would never happen because those two locations are too far away from each other, you know, stupid stuff like that. And, and Danny finally like has it and he goes, Beth, we'll take care of that with a cut. Like, you know, and I was like, okay, Macy, calm down, be quiet. Just like listen and learn, you know? So my goals going in were uh, a don't stereotype Appalachia because I still want to be able to go to the grocery store when I come home And, you know, just how awful would it be if there would have been a snake handling scene or something ridiculous like that? And then, um, B, I really wanted this message of MAT, which can be medication-assisted treatment, buprenorphine, methadone, as we've talked about. Uh, I wanted that to be clear about how hard it is to get, how efficacious it is, how it's uh, safer than abstinence only, which it still like battles this big stigma within the recovery community. And so uh, Danny was fully on board with that. So that's why you see Michael Keaton struggle to get on it. I mean, I couldn't be happier with the show. It's just, it's Michael Keaton. I mean, Caitlin Deaver, they killed it. They all killed it. And they all, like once I, I only went to set once. I have a little tiny part in episode three. But um, when I finally met them at the premieres, like, this is a cast that really did their homework. They knew um, almost as much about the opioid crisis as I did. The nicest thing anyone's ever said about the show, and it wasn't said to me, it was said to one of our writers in the room. He was in New York City where he lives and he was standing in line at a, at a Walgreens and he had a Hulu mask on. It was when, when the COVID was really bad, which it is again. Um, and somebody behind him said, have you seen that show, Dope Sick? And, he, and, and Ben was like, very like, yeah, actually, I worked on that. And um, they had this cute little conversation. And then afterwards, the woman behind them had been listening. And she said, I watched your show. And for the first time in three years, I called my addicted son. And like, that is everything. It, it, she could start to see her son as a human being again because of our Hulu show. That, that, that's everything. You allude to a couple of times in this book about how some of these issues that you write about and talk about have caused some rifts in your family. And I just wonder whether now this book is out or now that I wonder if anything has, is changing or has changed or how things are going there. Oh, with the family? Yeah. Um, hmm, that's a tough one. I don't see them a lot because they're in Ohio and COVID, you know, our mother died halfway uh, through this book. My, my sweet mother, uh, she had dementia real bad at the end. And she kept saying, what are you writing again? I said, I'm doing another book on addiction. And she said, you should write a love story. And I told my editor that my editor said, you have written a love story. And I love that. But yeah, I wrote a piece for the New York Times uh, that came out 
the Christmas app. My mom died in November and it came out right before Christmas of 21. And it was about how, as our mother was laying in bed with a hospice nurse, taking her final breaths. I mean, literally, she didn't die for a couple more days, but she was. You didn't know that. She was going, <gasps> you know, really low breath. She had had a stroke. And uh, they that was the week of the election. And they called they called it on Saturday and I'm sitting there with my sister who um, lives in rural Ohio is a fundamentalist Christian and, um, and the hospice nurse hears this bling on her phone and says, um, Oh, they're calling it for Biden. Although she says bidden for some reason, I don't, I don't get why they said bidden. And my sister just like our mom's going, <gasps> And my sister, who is a really nice person, as our mother's dying, says, it's fraudulent. You wait. It, it won't hold. Like, there's no way Biden's going to be our next president. And I was just so stunned. Like, because we we know we, we love each other enough. We know not to talk politics. But um, so I wrote this piece about it. It runs in The New York Times. I use my sister's nickname, which is what I've always called her. And I don't think her friends read the New York Times, but I sent it to her before it ran and she didn't say anything. And then on Christmas Eve, the day after the piece ran, she wrote me a note that told me how much it hurt her. And then she attached her version of the essay. It was exact. It was brilliant. It was exactly the same. It was exactly like what I wrote, but it was from her point of view. And it was actually like, Damn, Cookie. I see where you're coming at. I don't agree with you. You don't agree with me. But, you know, we just had a party, like a belated kind of celebration of life for our mom. And, you know, we're getting along okay. You, you've been involved in this story, and I mean the opioid story, for, you know, eight or ten years now. Um, and I know you uh, you mentioned sort of in passing in the book that when Dopesick came out, you were really depressed about it for a while. I guess I just wonder, I mean, you've plunged back into this very dark world that does have some light in it, as this book shows, but it is generally a, a place where people die and people don't get the treatment they need and and the government doesn't seem to care enough. You've been back in there over and over and over. And I just kind of wonder how you cope with that. Mm. Well, thank you for asking. Um, I think I've coped with this one by focusing on people who were having wins. So, you know, I don't, I'm not going to tell you about all the losses because you know about them already. I'm going to focus on the positives. That's what I tried to do. And there was humor. There was humor. And, um, you know, I don't, can I say a bad word on your show? Sure. So, you know, like that moment when Brooke looks over at me, Brooke is the HIV Ryan White worker, and the guy has just said, bitch, please. So that then becomes our like shorthand for God, we're so screwed up. Bitch, please. One of the things I do is I try to get some exercise every single day. That just helps unclog me. I do uh, yoga on Zoom with my best friend, Martha, every day. Uh, she's in Boston. I'm here in Virginia. We do this. It's called Glow, G-L-O. We do yoga every day. Like Tim says at the beginning of the book, you got to have hope and you got to ask for help. So I ask for help when I need help. 
I have this trauma expert on call named Laura Vandernoot Lipsky. Her last name is quite a mouthful. And she like, she is a secondary trauma expert. Cause you know, it's like, it accretes when you're writing about all this dark stuff. But there was this Friday when every storyline I was following fell apart. People lost their jobs, people relapsed. I mean, it was just like, holy shit, how am I writing a hopeful book? It says so there in the subtitle, all my stories are falling apart. So I call an expert, um, a harm reduction expert, Fred Brayson, a fellow North Carolinian, you know, basically I'm calling him for my own counseling needs. I was like, Fred, all these things have happened. What's like, Fred, what do I do? And he goes, Beth, this is just a pothole. Potholes get filled eventually. And he was right. All the potholes that I was freaking out about got filled. So it's just like, I mean, it's really Tim's advice to Sam at the beginning of the book is good for everybody. You have to have hope and you have to ask for help. And the two things, one don't work without the other. In some ways, there's no greater calling for a journalist than to make you look at something you did not want to look at. When it comes to the opioid crisis, Beth Macy has made the world look at the addicts desperate for help, at the craven drug executives, at the doctors wrestling with their souls. And now, in Raising Lazarus, she puts us among the grimy angels. People like Tim Nolan, saving lives in a McDonald's parking lot from the hood of his Prius. The Tim Nolans of the world are the ones who should get the Nobel Prizes and stock options. But if he did, maybe he wouldn't do what he does. It's the simplest truth, and it's the same whether you're talking about healthcare, or journalism, or religion. Meet people where they are. Beth Macy has spent her whole career doing that. Because of it, she has to find herself a nice dress for the Emmys. But that's not the reward. The reward is to give her readers and viewers a better understanding of the world. And maybe to make them care about some people they were trying very hard not to care about. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening.